And we're live. Hello, and welcome to Debut Spotlight. I'm Rachel Barenbaum, author of A Bend in the Stars. And today I am super excited about my guest, my friend, Judy Bolton Fassman, huge, huge literary fan, supporter here in Boston, is out with her own brand new memoir. I absolutely loved it. It's called Asylum. It's right here. It's her memoir. And I can't wait for her to share it with us. Before we get started, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about Judy in case you haven't heard of her. Judy Bolton Fassman's essays and reviews have appeared in major newspapers, including the New York Times and the Boston Globe. She's contributed to literary magazines such as Catapult, Brevity, Cognoscenti, The Rumpus, Superstition Review, Signal Mountain Review, and McSweeney's. Whew. She writes about arts and culture for JewishBoston.com. Her writing has appeared in the anthologies The Shell Game, Writers Play with Borrowed Forms, and Heroics, Women's Lived Experiences During the Coronavirus Pandemic. That's got to be fascinating. In addition to receiving a recent Pushcart Prize nomination, Judy is the recipient of the Alonzo G. Davis Fellowship for Latinx Writers from the Virginia Center for Creative Arts. She was the Aaron Donovan Fellow in Nonfiction at the Mineral School in Washington, and the recipient of a fellowship from the Vermont Studio Center. She lives outside of Boston. Whew. All right, that was a lot. Many, many accolades. Judy, welcome to my show. I'm so excited to have you here. Can you give me your elevator pitch? Tell me a short version of what is Asylum about? Asylum is about a young girl, a, a young girl who begins who's curious about her parents and childhood. And that curiosity extends all the way through adulthood. And um, it, it begins in earnest after I say the Kaddish for my father uh, in the wake of his uh, 2002 death. So, um, and then I find out some things about him or confirm some things about him that um, were rather surprising. There were some secrets at the center of his life. <laughs> Some secrets. All right. We don't want to do give away any spoilers, right? Or give away too much. But um, I will start by explaining the very first few pages of the book because they just pulled me in. So Judy starts off. So uh, just so we're clear, this is memoir. This is actually about Judy's life. This is and her parents and her history. Um, and in the very opening pages, she describes how she receives this very mysterious package from her father, who's always been a sort of mysterious man and quiet. And uh, she gets this package package and she's so excited to open it. She can't wait, but she puts it off because she knows she has to be alone. She wants privacy, right? So she sort of uh, waits until her moment. But then when she gets back to her room, there's a, a message on her answering machine and it's from her dad. And he says, burn the package, burn it, don't open it. And she burns it, right? And I felt like that was the moment when you're watching a movie and you're like, don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. But she did. She burnt it. Can you take us back to that moment? Why did you listen? Why did you burn it? Um, I write this in the in the um, in the prologue. I'm and I'm really forthright about it. I was really afraid. I thought that that package, which was really a you know a multi-page letter that he uh, habitually wrote to me on um, on uh, legal size yellow paper. I thought it was. Um, I thought it was a suicide note. Um, I, I, I was, and I, I didn't feel like I was equipped emotionally to handle that at that time. I was in my early twenties. I was afraid. I knew that he was more and more unhappy for various reasons and that his health was deteriorating. And I was afraid to see what was in that letter. And I thought if I burnt it and 
dealt with him on his own terms and person to person rather than reading a letter and obsessing over it and feeling helpless about it, um, that it would be easier if I burned it. And then can you sort of take me through what did it feel like to burn it? I mean, I feel like this is really what just, you know, carried me through this whole story waiting to see like what happened, what happened. So well, do you have regrets now or what do you, what do you think about? Well, as I was, um, you know, burning it and at, or before I burnt it, I remember holding it up to the light and looking, oh, you know, what's there? What's there? Can I, can I, you know, I was definitely curious, but I think fear in that, in this case, went out over my curiosity. So um, it felt, it felt sad, but it felt right. And I, I don't have regrets because I think that burning the letter sent me off on this journey of um, finding answers. Um, I didn't get easy answers. And I'm not sure that, that that letter had the answers. I don't know what that letter had, but I'm grateful to have been sent on this journey just by its, by its existence. I love that. So uh, one of the things that you do so well is you're, um, you're so brave and that you face this question that I think most people never do, which is what, you know, what were my parents like before? Um, you know, and most kids grow up just thinking their parents have never been younger than 40, right? <laughs> or whatever the age is. But in fact, your dad married your mother when he was 40. He had this whole life um, before that, right? And she was much younger at 24. So, um, but they both had lives before, right? And they both sort of, well, your dad's case, he was very quiet about it. Your mom aggrandized her life, right? So there were these two separate figures um, and you really dug in to face that pre-child, right? Their pre-lives, we'll call it. How did that feel? How did you get the courage up to do that? Well, I'm gonna refer you to the book in that I um, took on this persona of Judy Bolton, girl detective. Judy Bolton, and I think that helped me a lot to have that persona. Judy Bolton was um, a, a young girl who had a, who was the star of a detective series in the 40s and the 50s. And um, I had the same name as her. And I was just so thrilled when I, when the first time I saw it on the spine of a book that there was my name. I must have been about six years old. And I just, I, I just loved that we shared that name. And I, and I was a curious kid anyway. I was a nosy kid. I liked going through my father's bureau and my mother's, you know, uh, you know, drawers and, you know, it just, it, it, it suited me. So I, I became Judy Bolton girl detective. And I think having that persona gave me the bravery to do that um, because it was my brand from an early age on. And I was curious and I was always searching and I was seeking. And I think it also had to do with the fact that I'm the oldest child. Um, and I sort of felt, um, I, I sort of felt a, a a, a comp not a compulsion, but a, um, I sort of felt that I had to learn the family history and carry it and, and sort of preserve it in some ways. Yeah. I think that that does tend to be the oldest, the eldest child's role, right? The yeah. history that's keeper. Much so, yeah. Yeah. Um, so another thing that you did that's so brave and that I think you do, and you showed in this book you do in your life is you have the ability to make yourself go back and find closure right? And finish that chapter. Um, 
sometimes I just love to move on. I think a lot of us just move on. We don't want to have that courage. But uh, one of my favorite stories that you tell is um, it was this is just sort of a brief mention, but that you had um, loaned or given a Sidor, a prayer book that you had um, in your life to an old boyfriend, and he had mm -hmm. kept it for years and years. And you had you know life moments, um, you know when you wished you had had it right at your son's bris, and right like and then you right. got it back. You met with him. You called him. You guys right met up, and he gave it back to you, and he said, "I'm sorry, I should have given it to you sooner." And he'd held on to it right through divorce and everything. Mm -hmm. but I just thought that was such a perfect moment of showing your bravery and how you you look for that closure. Um, but I wanted to know, could you talk about that that journey and how you how you get yourself to go through that? Um, well, that ha it happened that I I had been with that boyfriend for a long time for um, almost for over eight years, and I had given him that sidor as um, as you know sort of a almost an engagement gift. It, we weren't formally engaged, but it was, you know, it was a gift that, you know, oh, we're going to be together forever. But, um, and there are no regrets there. I just want to make that totally clear. I'm very, very happily married to my husband. Um, but um, his, I, my, I guess my mother had read in the local paper that his parents had died, like, very close to each other and they were relatively young and you know I knew them I mean I knew the family they were my family for you know my you know very um impressionable years I went was with him from 16 to 24 so I wrote him a, a condolence note and I think that that sort of opened the floodgates for him and I I sort of had to you know manage those floodgates but while I had him on the line, so to speak, I wanted that Sidor back because I missed it terribly. And he had saved it. And he had it had been with him through moves, through traumas, through whatever was going on in his life. And he did he did come and he did come to Boston uh, from New York where he lived and he did he did give it back to me. And I was very happy to have it back again. And as you know in the book, I brought it to Israel because my father always wanted to go to Israel. He was not a religious man. He was, I would say he was one of the most assimilated Jews I knew. He didn't go to services. He didn't know Hebrew. He never learned to read Hebrew. He grew up in the classical reform uh, synagogue uh, in the 1920s because he was born in 1919. Uh, his bar mitzvah, he did have a bar mitzvah, but there was no Hebrew. And he, I think the only thing he knew was um, the Shema and just even the first couple of lines. But he had a love and a passion for Israel. I remember during the Six Day War, I was I was a little girl, I was six years old. And I remember him standing at my door frame and he never did the evening prayers with, with me, my mother did. I said the Shema every night only with her, he never did it. But when Israel was in that war, he stood at, at my door, my bedroom door and said, um, I'd like you to pray for Israel. So Israel was very important to him, and to be able to bring his siddur that he used at his bar mitzvah was really um, was really very special for me. Yeah, I felt like I was bringing a piece of him to Israel with me. I love that, and you got it back. You I got, got it back. back. 
I love that. I love that, man. Um, So speaking of religion, um, I did want to ask you a little bit about there's a lot of power to religion in this book. And I sort of felt like you uh, brought us along on your journey after he passed away. There's the um, tradition of saying Kaddish. And you talked about how at first you were um, sort of just saying the words. They were just right by by memory, right? These Hebrew words that didn't really mean much. But you started to try to look into what it meant, right? And you met with some rabbis, Rabbi Confer, right? And you sort of really worked into, well, what does what does it mean? What is it mm-hmm. saying to me? Um, and I thought that was such a beautiful journey. I'd love it if you could share and talk a little bit about that. You know, at first I was, I thought I would just say the Kaddish for the first 30 days, the Shloshim. I, I had young kids at the time. I wasn't p- particularly moved by it, but I wanted to somehow commemorate my father. And it had been a long time since I had regularly gone to a synagogue at that point. But I decided I was going to try it for 30 days. Well, as you read in the book, 30 days kind of turned into 40 days. And my father died um, heir of Rosh Hashanah. And by Thanksgiving, I was still going to the synagogue because I was so I felt so supported by the community. And when I got there the first you know, few weeks of saying the Kaddish, there was also a friend at, at the Minyan, it was at Temple Emmanuel in Newton, who was there also saying Kaddish and who guided me through the choreography and the cues and the, and, and the, you know, I think I read at one point that the Aramaic for me was really chewy. I mean, I was really having a hard time. I hadn't read Hebrew in a long time and I was having a hard time, um, you know, getting the words out. But, you know, sh- sure enough, with practice and, and immersion and going every day, the words started to come more easily to me. And my kids were at Solomon Schechter at the time, which seems um, which which seems kind of contradictory. But um, I had wanted my daughter in particular to have the kind of educa- Jewish education I did not have. I wanted her to have an immersive participatory experience in Judaism. I wanted her to read from the Torah. I wanted, if she wanted to wear a talit, to wear a prayer shawl, to put on tefillin, if, if that's what she wanted. I didn't have those options. And... Um, and you know, and I was always behind a, a, a you know a a, a, mechitza, a very big mechitza, the yeshiva, and these that I went to. So um, I wanted her to have a different experience. So that's why she was at Solomon Schechter. And sure enough, being there, being in the community, brought me along in that experience. And saying the Kaddish accelerated that experience for me um, to the point that I learned how to conduct, a, I never thought in my life I would know how to conduct a service, but my services, the evening service is fairly simple and I could handle it. And um, amazing. I did that. Yeah, I did that. That's amazing. Um, okay, so then on the other end of the spectrum, right, there's this religious side, but then you also have your mother took you to see um, clairvoyance. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and you looked, you know, fortune tellers like to say, you know, sort of helping you on this journey and looking for your dad and who are you going to marry? Right. All these questions. And um, I would love to hear you talk about that and share with the people listening, tuning in. You know, tell us what was that like? Well, there were two there were two specific incidents when I went with my mother to um, the uh, to see two clairvoyants, two different clairvoyants. The first was her friend Margarita. And Margarita was a very interesting woman in that she had a huge pile of tarot cards to read to me, but she also took the lit end of a cigar, put it in her mouth, smoked it, and literally smoke came out of her ears. I have no idea what kind of trick that was, 
or how she did it. But that's even, amazing. But my mother and I, even my mother, who had you know who was uh, you know used to this kind of thing, she's from. We should say she's from Cuba. She's um, and um, you know she she was interested in Afro-Cuban things and and um, and um, Margarita was an Afro Afro-Cuban. Anyway, she ended up reading my cards and saying that um, that bad boyfriend with the Cidor was cheating on me. And that I was going to marry a man with blonde hair, blue eyes, who had three letters in his name. Well, sure enough. So I love this. Five years later, I met an adorable man with blonde hair and three letters in his name. His name is Ken. And, you know, my husband is a scientist and he is just totally, you know, he's not buying into it. He thinks it's a total coincidence. He's very rational, but you know, he tolerates this. I think he thinks it's kind of funny. Um, the second time I went was six months before I met my husband. Uh, we were at a bat mitzvah in uh, Florida. One of my mother, my uncle's, my uncle's daughter. And my mother was told her cousins, she needs a reading. She needs a reading. She's 29. She's going to be 29 next week. She's not married. She doesn't even have a boyfriend. So we went to, so we went to this reading by Consuelo. And Consuelo in Spanish means consolation. She wasn't very consoling because she told me, she told me and my mother who was there with me, because of course this was a mother-daughter adventure that we had. Um, she's like, not gonna happen for a while. She likes to read and write too much. And my mother's an educated woman, and she said, you know, it's okay that she likes to read and write, that's fine, but you know, when's the husband coming? She's like, not for a while. Oh. Oh. Well, I met him six months later, so Consuelo was really wrong. Yes, <laughs> yes. But I love that you have these extremes and you share them. So um, now that we're talking a little bit about your mother, um, I don't want to give too much away, but I do want to talk about um, if anyone's following along, if you have the book in front of you, on page 90, you wrote this passage um, that just like, I don't know, just grabbed me, right? I sit there, I'll, I'll read it to you. It just oh. says, um, my mother received her American diploma on a warm day in May when she was finally the person she wanted us to know. Soon after that, she opened her own bank account and left my father. It's like, wow, you had a very complicated relationship with your mother to say the least. Can you talk about that a little bit? Are you okay to share some of that? I'm okay to share. I mean, it's in the book. So it's in the book, but talking about it. Actually, what's in the book is up for grabs. Um, yeah, my mother <laughs> is a very complicated woman. She is, um, you know, I, I, my next project is, is focusing more on her and I've been writing essays about her. And one of the phrases that I recently wrote about her is that she was damaged and determined. And that's really my mother in a nutshell. Um, she had a very traumatic childhood. She unfortunately passed that trauma on to her own children. Um, but I, I wanna make it clear that I'm not angry and I'm not looking for vengeance. I'm looking for understanding and I'm looking for love in the end with her. Um, but she is, she's a complicated woman. She was a hard mother to have. Um, but I've, I'm, you know, I've, come, I've come to terms, I've come to terms with that. Um, yeah. And now she's unfortunately not well. She's um, in a nursing home and she's in the throes of dementia. So um, she doesn't know anything about this book or, or really anything about me anymore, um, which which is a sadness, too, because I swear I, I, you know, I miss that part of her a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I was going to ask you if you had uh, run any of this by her before you put any of this down. But I guess we we. 
my brother and I tried to tell her about my dad when I was working on the book because I worked on the book for a really long time. I worked on, there was a first iteration that was just about saying the Kaddish for my dad between 2004 and 2008. And then 2008, it took on its own life when I did more research and found out um, my father's my father's big secret. And um, we tried to tell her and my father never told her. And she became, you know, hysterical and said we were lying. And so we left it alone and we've just left that alone. And now it's probably better not to poke her with it. And I'm not sure she would even understand it. So it's, you know, I just don't go there with her. Yeah. Um, so, but sticking with your mother, so you mentioned she was Cuban. Um, mm -hmm. And so you grew up speaking Spanish. I mean, you had many languages in your life, right? Ladino mm -hmm. also, right? Some Portuguese thrown in on the bus or whatever you yes. could. <laughs> I love that. Um, so many languages and your mother was a linguist, but um, you said that growing up and your very American, you know, second generation Yale graduate father made you feel like you were being torn between two worlds. And um, I wanted to ask you, do you still feel torn between two worlds? No, I don't. You know, one of my father's heroes um, was Winston Churchill. And many years ago, when I went to um, to London, I, I sought out all the Winston Churchill sites. This is this is going somewhere. This is going to answer your question. And, okay, um, I'm with you. And one, of the, and one of the quotes from Winston Churchill, he had an American mother and a British father, was, I have, I'm half American and half British, yet all British. For me, I was half Cuban, half, half American, but sometimes I was all Cuban and sometimes I was all American. I didn't, it, it, it wavered a lot depending on the status of my relationship with each of my parents. So I feel very Latinx and I also feel you know, I also have a bit of my father's patriotism. My husband likes to tease me that, you know, I, I, I like things structured and I like ceremony and I like, you know, ritual. And I think I get that from my father. He was very patriotic. I mean, he was, you know, that he, if you, when you read the book, you know that he marched just around on July 4th to John Philip Sousa um, marches. So um, I think that my relationship, waiver, waiver sounds like it's like, it doesn't exactly waver, but there are times when I'm all Cuban and times when I am all American. Um, and I think that's just a, just a reflection of my relationship with them, my memories of them, what I'm writing about, uh, sometimes even what I'm reading, you know, what, what that, that can spark that. Mm -hmm. I wonder, um, you know, you sound so American, right? You clearly have the American accent. So does it sometimes throw people when you say, actually, my mom is Cuban, right? Or you bust out in, I don't know, Ladino or Spanish? Um, what surprised people is that um, that I, I speak Spanish almost without an accent. That That's surprising that that, that, that came out of my mouth that way. I just finished an essay that's going to be published um, on the Jewish Book Council's blog, Paper Brigade, about losing my Spanish. I don't yeah. speak it as often as I did. I, when I was a kid, I spoke it with my grandparents. I was their translator. I mean, I would translate soap operas for my grandmother. Mm -hmm. um, I speak it now with my mother who lapses into it, to you know, who lapses back into Spanish um, for various reasons. And... But it, it's not as it's not as fluent as I, I understand everything. I can read a paper. I can watch Univision with her, but it's not as fluent as I would like it to be. And I I I think you know when the dust settles, I think I'd like to go back and try and and try and regain some of it.
I bet it's special. You mentioned in the book that um, your mom was different when she spoke Spanish, right? There were there were mm -hmm. um, you know more stunted in English, but there was more emotion. She was deeper in Spanish. Um, so maybe at this point in her life, maybe it's better that you're speaking Spanish with her. Yeah, she she as I said, she will start speaking yeah. to me in English, and she will she will go right back into Spanish. Yeah, so, um, it's amazing. Yeah. Native language. I mean, it's understandable. Right, right. And that's where the emotions are. Um, okay, so there's one other line I want to read for you, read to you from the book before I get to some craft questions. Um, so one of my favorite lines that you wrote about your dad was, my father believed that sailors lived and died according to how well prepared they were for the weather, a belief that colored the seasons of my childhood. Such a beautiful sentence. And I felt like that uh, really summed up or encapsulated a lot of what you discuss and find out about your dad. Was this sentence as important to you as it is to me when I read this book? Yes, I'm glad you picked up on that because the weather was a very big topic in our house. My father was an amateur meteorologist. He studied the skies. He knew the cloud formations. He knew he knew everything about the the you know astronomy. So weather was very important to him. He he was very respectful of the weather. He almost revered it. Um, he had these, you know, idiosyncratic preparations, storm preparations for us. You know, we grew up in Connecticut, so there was, you know, there was a few good snowstorms in, in a winter season. And um, he he was very mindful of the weather, very respectful of it, and it was a it was a it was a real consideration in his life. Um, you know, particularly, I think he got that a bit from the Navy also. Um, yeah. you know, where he would have to um, be mindful of the weather at sea. He served in the in the South Pacific during the Second World War. Right, but I mean, just it also seems like such so much more than the weather, right? Because of yeah, oh, definitely. Comes, there's a Absolutely. lot of symbolism in there that I really read and picked up on. So I don't want to give away right the second half of the book or whatever. But is there some sort of teaser or something you can tell those people that are listening that about you know what was the big secret that your dad had been hiding? Um, it, it had to do with his, with his work in naval intelligence. Let's just say that it's related to, okay. to continuing his work in naval intelligence. Okay. All right. That's well said. Cause I was sort of before, before we got in here, I was like, how do I, I don't want to say it. How do I phrase it? I'm just going to ask Judy. I'm just gonna have you tell us what it is. Okay, so we only have a few minutes left. I wanna ask you some of um, the favorite questions that my listeners, viewers always wanna know about, which is to start out with, what is the hardest part about getting published? What was the hardest part about getting this book published? I should say before you answer that, mm -hmm. I remember meeting you, I think it was two years ago. Mm -hmm. um, we had lunch, lunch and you were like, restaurant. Yep. yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And you were like, and I have this memoir and I think it's ready to go. I'm gonna start sending it out. <laughs> and you told me what it was about. And I sat there and I was like, I have to read that. Her dad, oh my God, I want to hear that. And her mom. So I was so excited when I found out that this came out. And I know this has been a long, long journey. So what was the hardest part for you? Um, the hardest part was the waiting. Um, it went on submission. It went out on submission a couple of different times with a couple of different um, agents, actually, um, a few years apart. So that that was that was really hard. And, you know, after the, there, and there were rejections. And after those rejections from um, the more major publishing houses, I realized that my, 
book was going to find a home at an independent literary press. That was that was really the right home for it. And I was very lucky in that I found the right home. Um, I did a lot of research um, and um, it ended up that, you know, and, and my publisher had the book for almost two years and wasn't sure. And, you know, so talk about, you know, waiting with bated breath. But, you know, since we're talking about the publishing process, I want to mention something um, that I want to give, especially women out there, hope. I'm 60, and this is my first book. This is technically my first book that's being published. And I'm, you know, I'm a literary debutante at 60, and I want, I want, especially the women out there, to keep making your art. Um, if you're a writer, the notes you're making on your notes app on your phone, they count. That's writing that's making a little bit of art every single day. It's a cumulative process. You know, if you're, if you're painting, what, whatever sort of pre, you know, things that you do to make a painting, that counts. Even just thinking about it, that counts. And I don't want anyone to give up on their art. There's no expiration date on, on making art and there's no expiration date on dreams because dreams are what fuel, fuel, fuel all of this. I love so. that. I love that. And I should also say, I want to make sure everybody knows that you are such a huge supporter. I said this in the beginning, but a huge supporter of other writers and women in particular and reviewing us and helping us get out there. And, you know, I know you have a huge fan club of people that so appreciate that. And I think you're helping other writers learn that also you can get involved too, right? Absolutely. <laughs> in your art. You don't absolutely. have to publish, right? Oh, right absolutely. Away. You don't have to publish. And, um, you know, sometimes publication is not the end all be all. It's just the pleasure of making the art, the pleasure of feeling like you've accomplished something for yourself and for others. I love that. So the very last question I always ask, I think you've already answered, but maybe in case there's something else, what kind of advice do you have? for writers. So someone who has decided, right, this is their art, they're going to do this, right? They want to get their book published. What, what advice do you have? I have some practical advice. Um, I, I want to give a shout out to Grub Street Writing Center. I took a look. I, I, have a, I have an MFA, but my MFA was in fiction. And I started to really find my voice in creative nonfiction, you know, in my late 30s, early 40s. And I took a I took a lot of classes at Grub Street, and I have to say I've never had a bad class at Grub Street. It's just the teachers are phenomenal. The support is phenomenal. I've met phenomenal people. Um, so I would highly recommend being involved in the literary community that way by taking workshops. And now you can take workshops all over the country because everything is virtual. So there's a there's really a plethora of, of, of classes to take and, and readings to attend. And the other thing I, I would recommend is, and I know, Every writing teacher I've ever had said said this, read widely. And, you know, if you're a fiction writer or a nonfiction writer, read poetry. Poetry is such is such fuel for the imagination and and it just, you know, the language is so inspiring. So I I've I've read a lot of poetry over the years, but read widely. Read as widely as you can. Um, you know, even if it's just a few pages every night, because it really it seeps in there and it feeds the soul. And it, you know, and it, 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 it even subconsciously shapes your crafting, you know? I love it. I love that advice. I think you're absolutely right. Judy, I loved your memoir, Asylum. Yeah. Here it is. Everybody go out, buy a copy, read it. Email Judy, let her know what you think. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can find me on my website, judybolton.fastman.com.
Yes, and please buy the book from your local bookstore. It's amazing. Everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. Judy, thank you for your time. May you sell many, many books. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you for all your support.